But it, actually, it's very simple, which is why I don't know why my notes have always been chaos, and I could not prepare this as well as I wanted to. But I just know that it's real, and I want us to get it. So I'm going to pray for us out of um, an ancient prayer Paul the Apostle wrote in Ephesians 3, and it's, it's a prayer for our hearts. So if you would, humor me, or if you feel comfortable doing it, I, I want to ask you to put your hand on your heart as I pray for us. So Father, come before you tonight, and I pray, I pray that out of your glorious riches, you would strengthen us with power through your spirit in our inner being, in the depths of our heart and soul, that you would touch us by your power tonight, so that we would experience you, Jesus, that you would root and ground us in your love, that you would give us the supernatural power to understand how high, how wide, how long, and how deep your love is, to experience it, to know it, to live in it. Lord, empower us. Do what only you can do by your spirit. Touch our hearts and speak, Lord. We are listening. Amen. So, I think that tonight's message... Um, should answer two important questions that are really in the heart of every human being. Um, who is this God that people are always talking about, and what does he want from me? Uh, like I said, it's actually really simple, yet hugely profound. So I'll take you on a journey back in time, We're going back in time, way back and back and back and back and back and back before there was time, that's a mind blower. Before there was anything, before there was an earth, before there was a sky and a heaven and a sun and stars, there was nothing except God. And so in this place, without time, without stuff, there was God. And God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were hanging out. And they were having a great time. I mean, everything was perfect. Everything was perfect. They were completely in love with one another. There was complete unity and harmony. There was no problem. And they didn't need anything. They, were, they, just, they existed, and they were in comp complete, uh, utter goodness. I mean, it just couldn't have gotten any better than it was. And here's God. But somewhere in the midst of the heart of God, he didn't need anything. He lacked nothing. I mean, he was perfection times perfection, what they had together. But in the heart of God was stirring something. There was stirring a desire. I mean, that's stunning to consider, that the God of the universe, the God of everything, is a God who has desire, who feels things. And most people, when you even say the word God, immediately they, they, they conceptualize someone, something really far away, and really big, and he's far away, and he doesn't feel anything, and he doesn't really care about much, because he's just power. But I want to change, I'm, I'm, I'm believing that God's going to change your mind about that tonight, because in the beginning, he had a desire, and that desire was churning inside of him. I mean, imagine God. God had everything he ever wanted. He could have anything he wanted, and yet he desired something else, something that he couldn't legislate. Something that he couldn't call forth just because he wanted it. He had a desire for it and a longing. And he's leaning into this longing in his heart. And out of that place birthed creation. He began to create. He, began, he, he, he made light and he made dark. And he made the sun and the moon and the stars. And he made land and water and sea and plants and flowers and vegetation. He makes animals and just all this glorious creation begins to unfold, and, and suddenly the universe is there with the planet Earth, tiny speck in it, and just beauty, beauty, all this beauty. And, and then in the midst of this, this creation birthed out of desire, he, he creates the crowning jewel of his creation. See, as he created these things, he looked and he said, oh, that's good. He looked and he said, oh, that's good. Oh, animals, those are good. Plants, those are good. Day, night, rivers, seas, it's good. And then he created you. He created mankind. The crowning piece in the center of his creation, he said, now that's really good. That's really, really good. 
Why? What, what was he looking for in the beginning when this desire brought forth all of this? I mean, it's like an explosion came forth from a, a little desire in the heart of God. And in the midst of, of creation, he plants man. And he says, I'm going to make this person. I'm going to make human beings. I'm going to make you, Emily. I'm going to make you, Nate. Where'd Nate go? He was right here. He said I could point at him. <laughs> Nate, you, Nate. I'm going to make Nate. I'm going to make him like me. I'm going to make him like me. And, and who, who was God? What was he that he made in his image? What was he looking for? What was he hoping would resonate in this creation that was like him? What was it about the human being that was different than the animals and the plants what, that was God's imprint on that man? Was that this being, you, me, humans, had the unique capacity to feel love, to give love, to receive love, and to desire. And God said to himself, I'm going to make human beings, I'm going to make man in my image, because if I make them with the capacity to feel just like me, if they, if they have the capacity to desire, what if, what if they would choose to love me back? See, this is the one thing God could not call forth because he, was just, because he wanted it. He could make a tree, he could make a plant, he could make water and air and light, and he can make anything, but the one thing that would not be real unless it was a choice was genuine love returned. And that was God's great desire in creation. That, my friends, is why you exist. Is because God existed with longing and loving in his heart, with a capacity to give and receive love and to feel love in the depths of his being. And he said, I want someone uniquely made to be the same, to receive my love and to give love back to me. And that's what you were made for. And then, so he created the man and the woman, he put them in the garden, and he gave them the choice. And it was heaven on earth. I mean, it was lit there was no separation. God and man were together on the earth all the time. It was perfection. And it was so good. And then this thing happened, where the serpent, the devil, came and he said, he, he snuck in with a deception. And ultimately, that deception was, you know what? You know what, April? God's holding out on you. He's not really as good as he says. He told you not to eat that because he didn't want you to know how good that thing was over there. Why don't you just take a bite of it? And, and the woman and the man said, yeah, God's not really that good. He's holding out on us. Why don't we just try this thing and exercise their free will decision to say no to God? And they did. And, and the, the great divide came. Heaven and earth were separated because man decided, I was created for love, but I don't want it. I was created to love, but I choose not to. That was the essence of that decision. But God didn't give up. If you read... I'm, Okay, this message is going to tell the story from Genesis to Revelation in the next 20 minutes. Ready? So, God did not give up. You see throughout the story of the Old Testament, God is calling out to his people. He's saying, hey, look at me. I made you. I set my affection on you. I decided to love you because I wanted to love you. Not because you're good looking. Not because you do everything right. Not because you're the best nation in the world. I chose you because I wanted you. Over and over and over, his voice comes back. But the deception stayed on the people. And they wouldn't listen. Fast forward to Exodus chapter 34. Here's Moses. Moses is a man who walked with God. He was God's friend. God called him his friend. He is one person, one of the only people we know of ever in history that it says he walked face to face with God. He stood face to face with God. You know what's supposed to happen when you stand face to face with God? Is you die. He didn't die. And so here's Moses. And one day, God comes to him. Exodus 34. You can look at it. I don't see many Bibles. So you can look at it. But what happened is God came to him and he said, Hey, Moses, I want to tell you my name. Now look, in the Jewish Old Testament culture, name wasn't just the, the most popular thing that you put on your child because it sounded good with your last name. The name was a reflection of that person's very character. It, 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 it was like their, it was the book title on their life. And so when God says, I want to tell you my name, 
He's saying, I want to tell you exactly what I'm about. I want to tell you my character, my nature, my personality. And here it is. He says, I am the Lord God, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and forgiving and kind. And at the end of it, Exodus 34, I got the scripture right there. Verse 14, he says, I am the Lord whose name is Jealous. I'm a jealous God. I'm jealous. Actually, if you look at that, it says jealous, jealousy in Hebrew. I'm jealous to be jealous to be jealous. And this, this is not the negative jealous that we know of in kind of our human interactions. This is that God has a desire to get what he, he created back. His heart is longing to have what his heart longs for. That's a righteous jealousy. He says, this is my name. This is who I am. This is who God is. He is a God that burns with passion. And throughout the Old Testament, again, you see it again. The people would do what they thought they were supposed to do with, to please God. They would bring the sacrifices, which, yes, he asked for, but he would, he would break in every so often, and he says, Hey, I don't want your sacrifices. I want your heart. Even though he asked for the sacrifices, but he didn't want the sacrifices without the heart, and he'd break in later. In the book of Amos, he says, Hey, I don't want your singing songs. I want your affections. I want your heart to move when you think of me. I want your inmost being to be stirred when you sing those songs to me. And so, you fast forward, and he even declared at one point, I am an all-consuming fire. This is who I am. I'm not a God that wants your dead animal. I don't want that heap of ashes. I'm a consuming fire of love and desire, and you are what I want. So at just the right time, when he could stand the distance no longer, when the great divide had cut him so badly to the heart, and he said, I must do something at just the right time, he sent his son, Jesus. He was the ex full expression of God. God said, look, I've been talking to my people for, for nine, ten thousand years, trying to tell them who I am, declaring my name to them, speaking to them in every way I know how. It, and they still, there's blinders on. They think I don't like them. They think I'm mad at them. I'm going to fix this once and for all, and I'm going to show them who I am, and I'm going to do it by sending my son. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, Talking about Jesus, the Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Look, think of Jesus. Everything he did, everything he was, everything he said was not just Jesus. Some people say, I like Jesus, but I really don't get the God of the Old Testament. It's the same. Jesus was expressing everything that God was. The reason we don't get it is because they didn't get it. Jesus was coming to set the record straight. Your ideas about God are wrong. Look at me. I am the exact representation of the heart of God. And he was altogether loving and kind. Not weak in any ways, but he came to express the desire of God. And the ultimate expression of that desire, that love, was what he did on the cross. Romans 5.8 says this, God demonstrates his love. You can't even read that, sorry, my bad. God demonstrates his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This was God expressing the fullness of his passion and his desire was, was that he would go to the full extent. See, because here's the gospel. It goes like this. You deserve hell. I deserve hell. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. That, that's exactly what we deserve. I mean, if it was written as, as, if it was written according to justice and according to truth, we all deserve hell. But God, he looked at that situation. He looked at you and me and said, oh no, I can't bear that. I will not bear that. I will make a way. I will cut through the dividing line and I will make a way. And I'll... Because God's desire was for us, that wasn't okay with him. It's not okay with him that you deserve hell. It's not okay with him that I deserve hell. And he looked and said, that's not okay, because I'm rich in mercy. 
Because I'm abounding in love, I'll send my son to make a way. And I'll take my wrath, the cup of my wrath and of my punishment, and I will pour it out full strength on my very own son. Oh my gosh. That's crazy. Your, your own son taking the, the one who did nothing to deserve it gets everything that we deserve. And Jesus steps up to the plate and says, yes, yes, Father, I will, I choose, pour the wrath on me so that we can have them. And he was thinking of you. Hebrews 12, 2 says that for the joy set before him, you know what Jesus was looking at when he let them put, you know, it was a choice. He didn't have to. He had a million chances before he got whipped to shreds, literally, that he didn't even look human anymore. He had a million choices to say no. The Bible even says he could have called at any moment 10,000 angels to take him away and stop the whole deal. But he willingly stretched out his arms and demonstrated his love. Because he wanted to make a way. Because his desire for you was so great that it wasn't okay that you would be separated from him forever. That I would be separated from him. Look, God demonstrated his love. Now check that out. It's a demonstration of what was inside the heart of God. See, love needs a demonstration. Some people think that, well, it's popular to say these days, well, you know, love's a choice. You choose to do what's right, you know, and that's what love is. And no way, God, God didn't even do that. He didn't do it just because it was right. He was demonstrating what existed deep in his heart. He was demonstrating what was already within him. He said, I love you so much, I'm going to show you what it looks like. And it was, a, it was just one expression, one demonstration of how he felt. And because he loved, you are saved. You can't earn it, and it's not your desire that can accomplish it. It was God's desire that accomplished it and opened the way. But he still can't legislate your love for him. He can't make you love him. What he's doing is, over and over, he's trying to show you once again. He started with creation. You know how we look at mountains and trees and valleys sometimes and we're just struck in our hearts with awe? That's because the whole of creation was designed in such a way to provoke our hearts to say, oh, and feel love for God. But it wasn't enough. So he had to come again and come again and come again and come again. And the ultimate expression was his son coming and saying, Look, I'll do this. Do you see that I love you? Will you love me back? Is what he's saying. And I guarantee you, that was the, that, that's the banner. But every day of your life, God is there and he's, he's, he's walking with you and he's looking for ways to say, Look, look at me. Love me. Love me back. Love me back. Love me back. All the circumstances of your life have been shaped in such a way that at every turn, he's hoping that your heart will move toward him. See, it's the longing of God's heart that you would actually feel something when you think about him. That your soul would be stirred when you hear his name. Sadly, for most Christians, that's not true. People that say they believe feel nothing. There's, there's no desire, there's no love, there's no response at the heart level. And this is, this is the sad tragedy of our existence, really. I mean, I can hear, well, yeah, my notes just got out of order, great. He knew, so, okay, well, I lost my place, that's nice. Are you with me so far? So, Jesus is walking the earth, and one guy comes up to him and says, you know, because in, in the day that, that Jesus lived in Israel, the, the Jewish customs of the day, they had about 600 some odd laws, that requirements that they were supposed to fulfill. <laughs> Dang. That's heavy duty. So one guy comes up to him one day and says, Hey, Jesus, you're kind of a nice guy. I'm kind of wondering, could you tell me 
What does God really want? I mean, really. 612 commandments is a lot of stuff. Could you just kind of boil it down to me? Like, what does God want from me? Basically, that's what the guy was saying. And Jesus answered him, very simply, Matthew 22, verse 37. We call it the, the greatest commandment. Jesus replied to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 40, all the law and the prophets hang on this. In other words, everything I've ever said ever boils down to this. Love me. That's all I want. What do I want from you? Love me. I told you it's simple. But love, love is invasive. Asking for a heart response is a big deal. It's so much easier to do the stuff. You know, bring two calves, slaughter them on the altar, light them on fire. Okay, did my thing. See you later, God. We do it as, as Christians too, you know. What does God want from me? Okay, I should be a good person and, and try not to sin and go to church and, you know, read my Bible and pray and okay. We do the stuff. But we disengage our heart, and God's looking and He's saying, You know what? I am jealous that you would feel a little more for me than you do all the nice comments you got on your Facebook page yesterday. I'm jealous that you give me as much excitement as you do your favorite football team, or your favorite hobby, or your best friend. Would you feel, I wish that you would feel something for me because really in God's economy he's like I take that over all the stuff if you never prayed if you never read your Bible you never went to church you never showed up a large group I take just one movement of your heart in my direction that you would actually feel something for me the way I feel for you said the guy said to Jesus what is God's desire and Jesus basically was saying that you would desire him. I mean, notice that he says, for, love the Lord with all your heart. There's a reason that one's first. What is the heart? That's your emotional seedbed. It's where you feel. And uh, then he says your soul, which is your, your will, your, your capacity to make decision, to your personality, your individuality. And the third on the list is our mind, but we, we so, in our culture, we, we deify the mind, and we give the mind everything. We think it's just about believing the right stuff in our head is what answers God's cry, and it's not at all what he wants. So flip to the end of the Bible. I told you we're going to go Genesis to Revelation. Did you get it? We're going to hit Revelation now. John, the Apostle John, was the one who said about himself, I'm the one that Jesus loves. Now, look, he wasn't the only one that Jesus loved. But you know what? Why he said that? He got it. Okay, so John, the one disciple who got it, not that the others didn't get it, he really got it. One day he's spending time, after Jesus left the earth, he's spending time with God. He's having his quiet time, or maybe it wasn't quiet. He was having time with God. And, uh, and all of a sudden... God shows up, and he get literally, this is the book of Revelation, by the way, read it, it will blow your mind. He literally, God takes him up to heaven, like up to heaven in the spirit. We don't know, maybe his body was still on the ground, whatever. He was in heaven, he saw heaven, he saw it all. He saw the throne room, he saw the angels, he heard lightnings and thunders and, and voices and trumpets and music, and it was crazy. And then he saw Jesus. And when he looked at Jesus, he goes, whoa. His eyes were like flames of fire looking at me. Basically saying, look, here's Jesus. And he's, what, what is in his heart, what's on his mind is that he is desiring something. He is full of passion. Look, where do we get this idea that God's far away and distant and cold when every time, if you've ever read the Bible, every time God opens the curtain just a little bit, just a, every time he opens the curtain on himself 
Every time anyone sees just a glimpse of heaven, it's like... <coughs> That's intense! Where did we get the idea that God is cold and boring and distant? For real! We don't have any pictures when someone, when Ezekiel or Isaiah or the Apostle John sees God, never is it clouds and harps, you know, and, and flowers. <laughs> and everybody's sitting, you know, strumming their You don't see that. Because that's not really who God is. We've been lied to, guys. We've been sold a lie. Okay, back to the book of Revelation. <laughs> so John sees Jesus, and he falls on his face. He goes, whoa! I thought I knew you, but now I see you again. And Jesus looks at John, and he says, John, I have something to tell my people. I have a message for my people. He says, write this down. You better bet. You better bet he grabbed a piece of papyrus <laughs> and started jotting some notes. And so Jesus, in the book of Revelation, chapter 2 and 3, begins to give this message to the churches. Seven churches. Now, they were literal churches that existed in that day, but they weren't the only churches, so why seven? Well, seven, in, in God's economy, always... Uh, always represents fullness, completeness. So actually, what that means is Jesus was giving a message for his church that existed that day that, that John, exist, John was living, but also forever. He was giving a message to his people, us, for the rest of time. And the very first one, the church at Ephesus, the very first thing on Jesus' mind, when he looks at John and he says, write this down, is the church of Ephesus. Now let me tell you about the church of Ephesus. This was a great place. Like, this church was growing crazy. Like, it was a revival center. They were seeing people get saved. They saw miracles. Like, people were getting healed. And um, they, I mean, if this church existed today, they would be the one producing all the, the great worship albums that everybody wanted to do. And you would, we would all be singing their songs. And they would be the one putting all the books that everybody's like, oh, you got to read this book. That was the church at Ephesus. They were hot stuff. And Jesus looks at them and he comes to them basically and says, Hey guys, you're doing such a great job. I am so proud of you, everything that you're doing. But, Revelation 2 verse 4, I have a problem. There's something burning in my heart. Verse 4, that you have abandoned the love that you had for me at first. But wait, they're doing everything right. They're growing. They're, they're exploding. They're prospering. People are getting saved. And Jesus says, I have a problem. You don't love me the way you did at first. I would rather that you love me the way you did at first than you have all this other stuff. And then he goes on to say, if you don't turn back and love me the way you did that first day we met, you're going to lose it all. Basically is what he said. If you don't turn back and love me again, it's gone. It's all lost. See, like I said, actions don't, le don't mean love. And it goes both ways. God loved, therefore he acted. And when he looks at us and he says, I want you to love me, he's not just saying, I want you to act right. He's saying, I want you to feel. Because when you feel, you act right. Let me give you an example. I'm married. 11 years. I know, I don't look that old, but I am. And... <laughs> My wife, suppose I decided one day, look, I want to do all these great things for you. We're going to go out to dinner, I'm going to buy you flowers, I'm going to give you candy, we're going to go to the nicest place, then we're going to go on a seven-day vacation to your favorite spot, wherever you want to go. And if I did all those things, but my heart wasn't in it, guess what? One, she would know. She would read through it in two seconds. She'd say, oh no. I don't want any of that. If you, if you don't love, you don't really love me. I don't want that stuff. So she would see through it and she wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. Because real love bears love actions. Actions don't equal love. We've been taught so often that God wants us to be right, do right, do the right thing. But that's like going to every class and then skipping the exam. You miss the point. You fail. God wants your love. So, 
real Christianity is this. You hear the gospel, suddenly you're face to face with burning desire. What are you going to do? How are you going to live? See, the modern Western church, like I said, has sold us a lie. It's told us that the highest form of faith is to believe and not feel anything. That you've really arrived in maturity the day that you serve God with all your might, even if you don't feel a thing. I tell you, that's a lie, and it robs God, and it robs you. We've been taught that emotions are dangerous. Don't trust your emotions. Look, God has emotions. We have emotions because God gave them to us because we're made in his image. They're not dangerous. What's dangerous is what you may or may not do with them. The Bible calls our heart, says our heart is like a river, and it flows. Our emotions are going to flow somewhere. Now, if you look and someone tells you that you're not supposed to feel or God's not about feelings and loving God, it doesn't have to do with your feelings. Don't worry about your feelings. Suddenly you put a dam in that way, your heart emotions are going to find somewhere else to go and it's not going to be the right place. And that's our problem. We let our emotions go everywhere else but not God. One, because we don't understand that that's what he wants. But two, because we've been told that that's weakness and it's dangerous. And it'll lead us to destruction and delusion and confusion, and it's not true at all. Like I said, God's not stoic. Why would, why would he want us to be stoic? If God is rumbling desire and burning fire, why would he want our Christianity to look like this? But it does, most of the time. We do what we're supposed to do, and we're dead on the inside when it comes to God. And God's looking at us saying... Man, I wish you would feel at least as much for me as you did for, you know, your Thanksgiving dinner. You were more excited about the food than I've ever seen you be when you said my name. I mean, he's really jealous for that because we were made in his image to be like him. Now, I want to stop for just a second making an aside. Oh, I'll be wrapping up soon. I just looked at the time. <laughs> my commercials, can we cut those out for the time that I took? Um, some of you guys, you're thinking... Yeah, yeah, loving God is kind of girly. Not really interested. Well, I tell you, you are painfully ignorant. Loving God is not girly at all. Have you ever heard of King David? King David was more man than you'll ever hope to be. <laughs> I mean, look, he tore up wild beasts with his bare hands. Okay? No, he did. He took out a giant that the rest of the nation was afraid of with a slingshot. He got a band of wild nobodies. David's mighty men, read about him. Those guys are nuts. And he took this wild pack of castaways and, and defeated armies that were 50 times this size of his. And in the end of it, God looks at David and he says, David is a man after my heart. And look, it wasn't because of any of that. It was actually because he loved God with all his being. If you look in, in the book of 2 Samuel, you'll see David, and the presence of God is coming into the town. And what does he do? He, in front of the whole country, this was like, if it were today, broadcast on live television, he's doing a dance of worship because Jesus is in the house and he's half naked. <laughs> he loved God. You know, all those love songs in the Bible, we call them psalms. David, the manly man that he was, he wrote those. Loving God is not girly at all. If he, David was the only man ever given that compliment. He's a man after my heart. And it, was be, it wasn't because he did exploits. It wasn't because he was tough. It was because he loved God. Jesus... Jesus was not some pansy, hippie, waving peace signs, although a lot of religious art makes him look like that. Don't you hate that? I look at those things, I'm like, oh my gosh, I want to puke. That's not Jesus. He... Jesus was tough, dude. He manned up to the authorities of his day. And he took on death. You know what? I don't see any of you saying, look, you know, I am the son of God and I could be out of here in a second, but you know what? Whip me because I can take it. With me because you're worth it. Jesus was no pansy, no fairy. Loving God is not girly. Okay, I just had to say that for the men in the house and the ladies. Come on. So how do you respond to this God of desire? 
It's easy. You say, yes, God. If that's who you are, I will love you. I will choose to love you. The best gift you can ever give God is not your service. You know what? Jesus didn't die so that you do the right works. He didn't die so that you go tell other people about do evangelism. He didn't die so that you'd show up at church and read your Bible and pray. He didn't die for any of that stuff. He didn't die so you'd be a good person. He didn't even die so you wouldn't sin anymore. He died to win your heart. Okay? If you didn't get anything else from my talk, that's what he wants. The best gift you can ever give Jesus is to love him right now, right where you are, even in your weakness, even in your maturity, right where you are. That's all he wants because, look, if you love if you make a decision, if you set your heart that I am going to love God no matter what, you will get the other stuff right. I promise you. Do you struggle with sin? Forget the sin. Stop looking at the sin and say, you know what? I'm going to love God. Because if you set your heart to love God, sin will lose its grip on you. When you start looking more at Jesus than you do at your sin, you're going to lose track of your sin. Your sin's going to fall off, and soon you'll just be looking at Jesus. You'll be like, wait a minute, where'd that sin go? See, if you, the love, it has to start with love, and the love will produce the right actions. Your obedience will be more real and more genuine, more lasting, more consistent when you focus more on loving Jesus and less on trying to be more obedient. Does that make sense? See, this takes some pressure off. But I tell you, it'll transform you. I mean, people in love do crazy things. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever heard of the, the mom who, when their kid runs out in front of traffic, shoves the kid out of the way and they die? They love that kid. Crazy, crazy things happen when you're in love. You do things that are irrational. And that's exactly what God wants. He wants you so in love with him that you don't care what anyone else thinks. Crazy people do crazy things. Crazy people in love do crazy things. You know, they accused Paul so many times of being crazy because he was doing the stuff. And why was he doing the stuff? Why did he go into all these cities where they kept threatening to kill him? And he kept telling them about Jesus. And he kept telling them about Jesus. They said, shut up, we're going to kill you. He said, I can't. You know what he said? Christ's love compels me. It's love that has taken me over and possessed me. And I tell you, it's an experience. I'm going to share one last story from the Bible and one psalm. And, and I'm going to wrap up. This is the last point. That love is the one thing that will remain. It's the one thing that really satisfies God, really. And it's the one thing that will satisfy you, really. Some of you are very dissatisfied on the inside. I know it. What you know in life, even what you know of God, has not filled the void, has not satisfied the hunger. It's because you've missed this point of love, of desire, of surrendering to the, the living flame, like we sing about, of love. See, there's going to be a day where we all face God, face to face, and we're going to be ju judged based on love. And love is real. And love's an experience, and I'm giving it away, but Matthew chapter 7, Jesus is talking, and he's giving a picture. He said, look, one day, everybody's going to come in front of me, and this is what's going to happen. I'll read it to you. Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me on that day, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord. Do we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name, perform many miracles? And he will say to them plainly, Hey, I never knew you. I didn't know you. Away from me, you evildoers. I didn't know you. Now what does that mean? Maybe you've never heard this before, but this will this revolutionize your reading of the New Testament. Whenever that word know, to know in the New Testament, actually means to experience. So when it talks about eternal life, this is eternal life to know God, it means that eternal life is that you have an intimate experience with God. See, it's not that they believed God when they came and said, Lord, Lord, you're Lord. I know you're Lord, Jesus. It's not that they believed that. They said, we, we healed people. We drew out demons. We did miracles in your name, Lord. 
So they, they believed the right thing, and they even did this stuff. But Jesus looked at them and said, you know what you did not have with me? We did not have any intimate experience. There was no heart-touching heart between you and me. Therefore, what you did doesn't mean anything to me. What you believe doesn't mean anything to me. When it talks about to know God in life means that eternal life begins the day we begin to experience him on a heart level. When we begin to say, you love me, God. I see how much you love me. I will love you back. Lord, open my heart to love you. Awaken my heart to respond to you, even in the tiniest ways, because I understand that that's what you want. I mean, we have so much compromise in our lives because we believe that sin is pleasurable, that the things of the world are pleasurable, but God is not. We think God just is, and we have to believe because we don't want to go to hell. It's a lie. It's the same lie. It's, this, it's the devil coming to you with a piece of fruit and saying, look, God's holding out on you. Everybody else has this. Don't you wish you could have it too? Do you think that that fruit that Adam and Eve ate tasted any better than the other stuff? No. Do you think they horribly regretted that decision for the rest of their existence? Yes. Guess what? The fruits that the world and the devil are offering to you, do you think they really taste better than God? than experiencing God? What if you would get to the end of your existence and regret that you tasted those and never stopped to taste God? See, look, whenever God makes a deal, you always get the better end. Have you ever noticed that? I just want you to know, I'm trying to break off a lot of deception. We're so deceived. We're so clouded by lies about who God is. It's a, it's a deception, guys. God's always given us the better half of the deal. It's like this. He says, hey, give me your sin, and I'll give you eternal life. What kind of deal is that for God? He's like, sin, thanks. He says, give me your sickness. I'll give you healing. Give me your brokenness. Give me your shame, and I'll make you whole. When God says, Say no to sin and taste of the pleasures of knowing me. Guess what? You're going to get the better end of the deal. But nobody talks about it. But look, Psalm 36, King David wrote this. He said, Psalm 36, verse 7 and 8, How priceless is your unfailing love, God. People take refuge in the shout of your rings. They feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from your river of delights. Another version would say your river of pleasure. With you is the fountain of life. In your light, we see light. Knowing God, loving God, is, is entering into a supernatural experience of pleasures you've never imagined. I tell you, it feels that I'm talking, this is my story. I would not be standing here today if I had not run headlong into the reality of experiencing God when I was in college, when I was your age. Because I had so much brokenness. I had so many choices where I could have gone wrong. But I said, God, who are you? What do you want from me? And he said, I love you. Love me. And he, and he brought me into this experience of his eternal pleasures. Forever we drink from this river. And I tell you, it's better, it's more satisfying than whatever you're giving your time and whatever you're giving your affections to. Whatever you're letting move you on a deep level, I'm telling you God is better. He never cuts a raw deal. He will not leave you hanging. There's a reason the Bible says, taste and see that he is good. But you actually have to reach out and taste him first. You actually have to shut the other stuff down for a minute and believe that he is who he says he is, that his name is true, that his character really is desire, jealousy, living flame of pure love. I'm telling you, this is the answer to every question. This is the answer to human existence. You guys, if you don't get this, no one else is going to get it. I'm telling you, you're here, you showed up at the Christian large group meeting. If you, if you don't touch on something that's real, tangible, and better than what the world has to offer, you've got nothing to offer anybody when you share Jesus with them. Okay? That's just fact. 
Now, that doesn't mean you're hopeless. It means you have hope because God is better. He will always be better. In the end, he will be vindicated and you will be sorry if you gave yourself to drink of every other thing and never stopped to really drink in God. So, I think there's a couple different people here today. There's some of you who, you know, you're in compromise. You believe God, but you, He's never touched, you've never let Him touch the deepest part of who you are, so you go on living the way you're living, because you don't know any other way, and you can't imagine a lifeless, dull, stoic life of just being that Christian. That's because your idea of what that Christian is is a lie. And the Lord is shaking you down today. He's, he's shaking you down and revealing truth today. And He's saying, what are you doing? What lie have you believed? I'm telling you the truth. This is what you need. That stuff is not going to satisfy and you will regret, regret it. Now some of you, you're not in compromise. God will look at you and say, you're doing really well. You got the stuff down. You're living good. You're doing the stuff. But... But you're in a dangerous place because your heart is locked up. Your heart is cold. You're doing the right stuff on the outside, but on the inside, there's no flame. You know why that's dangerous? That's what the Pharisees were. They kept the 612 commandments. But Jesus looked at them and said, you don't know me. You don't love me. And the Lord is giving you an opportunity to return to your first love so that you'll recognize God standing right in front of you. Now, some of you, I believe God's already been moving in you in this way. But you look at yourself and say, God, my love for you is weak. It's really, really weak. And God says, that doesn't matter. It's real. It's genuine. And I can take a tiny flame that's real better than a fake one. I can work with a little flame. I can fan a little flame. And he wants to lift off of you any kind of condemnation, any kind of guilt of not measuring up because the only measuring stick in his book is will you love me? You know, when we get saved, we always, a lot of people say we give our heart to Jesus. But my question for us tonight is, have you really? Did you give him your heart? Or did you just decide that it was a good thing to believe? Did you really engage the depth of your being to love Him? I do that every day. In the morning, when I wake up, I say, God, I give you my heart today. I want to love you today. Again, I want to love you for real today. It's not just a one-time thing. And it's not just a nice phrase for getting saved. It's a reality that we would really let him have the most precious part of who we are, and that's our heart. So I want us to stand, and, and we're going to just respond to the Lord. This really is the end. But I want you to stand so you don't fall asleep when we go to prayer. If you need to go, please go. Um, yeah, just play, don't sing first. Let's go before the Lord, and I just want to pray for us. I want to give us a chance to respond. I know the Lord is speaking to, to many of you. Actually, I would believe He's talking to all of us tonight. So, could you just close your eyes with me? Just consider, which category are you in of what I just, imagined, what I just described? Have you been engaging compromise? because it's the only good feeling you know? Or are you the one that's been very obedient but has not loved? Are you the one who's attempting to love but you feel weak? Wherever you are on that spectrum, I want to invite you right here, right now, where you are, with your own voice, doesn't have to be loud, and in your own words, Tell the Lord, I really do want to love you. If that's the cry of your heart, tell him, I really do want to love you. Tell him, if you want to give him your heart, just tell him, I give you my heart. I give you my heart. 
I've done it again and again, but I give you my heart tonight. If this is who you are, that's who I want to be, God. If you've never made a decision and responded to the Lord with your whole heart, even in words, I want to invite you to do that, even now. Say yes to the love of God for the first time. He doesn't care where you've been. He doesn't care what you've done. He doesn't even care what you think about it. If you want to respond and love the one who loved you first, just tell him right now. You are free. The way has been paved. Everyone in the room, you should know, there is nothing between you and God except yourself. Jesus cleared the way. And if you want to come closer, if you feel far away, God says, come. There is nothing hindering you from me. Just run to me with your arms open. Run to me with your arms open. I am not hindering you. I am not holding you back. My son's blood has opened the gates wide. Run, run, run to me. There's no reason that anyone should feel distant from God. I feel, I, I, it's like I can hear the Lord saying, even right now, he's saying, I desire you. Yes, you, even you. I want you. I want your love. I am jealous for your heart. Will you give me your heart? Will you set your heart open for me? Will you let me walk into that deepest place of who you are? Will you commit yourself to be a man, to be a woman whose heart is after me? Because if you'll give me that, I will get everything I want from you. That's all I want. That's all I want. That's all I want. Just invite you to, to make your own prayer in the next minute. I'm just going to give you a minute to respond. And invite the Lord in, just to say yes to Him. Make this real. Make this real.